Well, good morning and happy Sabbath, everyone. You can tell I'm still a little bit congested from the uh, illness from uh, that. Well, the illness that's kind of plagued our family over the past maybe two and a bit weeks, and so I'll just be keeping the mask on after I uh, after I finish the sermon. But um, yeah, this week was a was an interesting one for for our family. It was one of recovery. Um, we had to break the news to our kids. Sorry, you're going to school on Monday. And of course, they were very excited about that. Actually, they were like, no, but it was time. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, after after two weeks of being knocked out by this flu, I hope all I hope none of you get what we have what we caught. Um, and I hope that you're able to stay healthy through this season. Um, it was also a, an interesting week because of um, yeah because of tragedy and I'm sure you would have read the news about what happened in Texas um, that probably was uh, I, I think every news agency covered that story um, but I don't know if you also heard about what happened in West Africa where there was a hospital that burned down and I think there were a handful of newborn babies that that had um, didn't make it out of the fire and so it was just it was one of those moments where it just causes you to pause and reflect on um, just kind of where we are at in Earth's history. It, it, it makes it made me much more appreciative of my own kids. Like when they came home that day, like I gave them an extra hug, and it just it, it makes you really value life. It makes you really value living in a country like Australia, where um, fires in hospitals or uh, gun violence in elementary schools just would not happen. And um, anyway, definitely made me uh, pause for a moment. Well, today we're going to be talking about <coughs> delighting in the Trinity, delighting in the Trinity. And I'm just going to invite you to join me for one more word of prayer as we um, open God's word together. <coughs> Father God, I just want to thank you for this moment that we have to spend time together as a community of faith, to worship together, to pause from the busyness of the week and to spend time just thinking about you and thinking about your word. Um, as we discuss, as we explore, as we tackle this topic of the Trinity, I just want to invite your presence into this place. I pray that this would not just be an uh, intellectual exercise, but that we'd be able to practically learn something um, from, this, from this idea that is very central to Christianity or central to Christian faith. And so I just pray that your presence would be felt here and that you would guide us as we um, read, read Scripture together. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So Today's topic is entitled, Delighting in the Trinity. Now, in the past, I've talked about the paradoxical nature of God, the paradoxical nature of God. There are some teachings in Scripture that are paradoxical. For example, we talked about loving God and loving our neighbors. And the question is, if we primarily love God, then how can we love our neighbors? Because there are times where God's commands contradict our ability to give goodness and mercy to our neighbors and vice versa. There are times where we want to be good to our neighbors. It makes it difficult for us to then to love God. We also talked about that balance of mercy and truth. Of If we prioritize truth, then it becomes difficult to then give mercy and vice versa. If we give mercy, then sometimes it becomes difficult to uphold truth. And yet you need both paradox 
in order to experience and encounter God, and that's really what makes him divine. If you're interested in those topics, you can go back to the church YouTube channel, and you can watch those sermons there. So today, I want to talk about the paradoxical nature of the Trinity, the paradoxical nature of the Trinity. Is God three, or is he one? How is it that we believe in a monotheistic God when there are three gods? How does this work? So Islam really struggles with this idea. Um, And regularly, when I've had conversations with people who are from the Islamic faith, they bring up this idea of the Trinity. They're like, you believe in one God or three? Which one is it? You can't have both. Um, Even within Christianity, there have been waves of um, anti-Trinitarianism, even within Adventism, where uh, different people will say, oh, Jesus is not divine or the Holy Spirit is not God. And so we struggle with this idea. And I think sometimes people present models and metaphors to help explain the Trinity. For example, I don't know if you've seen the egg model where you have the shell, the yolk, and the white, but all three make up one egg. And you can kind of draw different conclusions. Of course, it has its weaknesses. Um, I've also heard uh, that the Trinity is like the three states of H2O, where you have liquid, vapor, and solid. All three are H2O or H2O, but each are different. You might be familiar with this picture. It's referred to as the Trinity Shield. And um, the the Trinity Shield is often used to show the distinct nature of God within the Trinity. And at the same time, it shows that all three are God. And the picture, you know, it's helpful, but it's also a little bit challenging because sometimes you can kind of wonder, is there like, Is there a fourth? Oh, that wasn't it. Okay, I can't use the pointer. (laughs) Anyway, sometimes it makes you think, is there a fourth God? I can use it now? (laughs) I appreciate it. (laughs) It's all right. Um, Okay, so the metaphors continue. And each metaphor and illustration can be useful, but they can also be confusing. And so often the difficult nature of the Trinity causes many people to ask the question, why does this matter? Does it matter? And when the answer doesn't arrive, then it's easy to either discard or set this teaching of God to the side. And today I want to encourage us as a church to embrace the challenge of the Trinity, to embrace the challenge of the Trinity. Understanding the Trinity should deepen our experience with God and with each other. The Bible makes it clear that the Trinity is essential and foundational to Christianity. So in the Great Commission, here in the closing scenes of Jesus' time on earth, Jesus is setting the foundations for the movement that he started. What directions would he give to his followers? And as he passes the baton to his followers, notice the instructions that he gives to his disciples as they build the church. If you start in verse 19, Jesus says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, the disciples are not to discriminate, even though they would have a tendency to give preferential treatment to their own nation. Jesus tells them to go to the ends of the earth. Then they are to teach all things that they were commanded of by Christ. They were to go in the assurance of the presence of God. And finally, when you look at verse 19, they were to go in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus specifically names three, not one. 
There's something foundational to Christianity that out of the four bits of instruction given to the disciples, one of them was specifically to give proper acknowledgement to the Trinity. So there are a few examples of the Trinity working together within Scripture that I want to cover with you. There are a few times where the Trinity worked together for the sake of humanity. Here's the first example in creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Then in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Jesus says, or excuse me, God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. You will notice that when God speaks, he is speaking to himself in the plural. Let us. And this is not an accident. The name of God used in Hebrew, or excuse me, in Genesis 1, verse 26, is Elohim in the Hebrew. And if you parse the noun, you will find the name of God is in plural. And um, in Hebrew, you read from right to left, and there's like a little, little R and a square at the very end. And in Hebrew, that's yim, so Elohim. So yim, whenever yim is added to any noun, it means that noun is plural. So if you're ever interested and you're reading some Hebrew text and you see yim, you'll know, ah, plural. And when God says, let us make man in our image, it is not an accident. It's not a bad translation. It's accurate. So when you fast forward to Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we read about Jesus' baptism. <clears throat> and here Matthew writes, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water at the, mo at the moment heaven, <laughs> heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So here at the baptism, we see the son getting baptized, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and the voice of the Father confirming the identity that Jesus Christ is my son. Now this event is significant because it marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The mission of God has begun in Jesus' life. And we read Jesus commands, we just read Jesus commanded his disciples to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this example is significant because, in, because baptism in the eyes of God means something. And it means, one, you belong to the family of God. So at baptism, God invites you into the fellowship that exists within the Trinity. It's God saying, you belong. It is also the beginning, it marks the beginning of God's mission in the life of the follower of Christ. Now the la last example that we're going to look at of the Trinity working together um, in Scripture is the resurrection of Christ. The Bible attributes the power of the resurrection to all three members of the Trinity. So in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. So here Jesus says, I resurrected myself. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, Paul says, The Spirit raised up Jesus. Notice he writes, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, 
He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives or because of his spirit who lives in you. So notice Paul says the spirit raised up Jesus. Well, which one was it? In Galatians 1.1, Paul says that God the Father raised up Jesus. He writes, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. So when we look at scripture, the Bible says that all three are actively, or actively play a part in the resurrection of Christ. And this is significant because Jesus claims that only God has the power over death. And if all three are active participants in the resurrection, then all three are divine and must be God. I started this sermon by saying the paradoxical nature of God is what makes him divine. I want to spend some time exploring this statement. In John chapter 17, verse 24, when Jesus is praying, he prays, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. And in Jesus' prayer, we see before creation, before anything was alive, before being the ruler of the universe, we see a picture of love that is portrayed within the Trinity. And here lies the foundational argument for the love of God compared to all other gods, especially of antiquity. When you look at examples of Sumerian deity, a different character of God is painted. So Marduk, who is Babylon's god, creates humankind so that gods can have slaves. <clears throat> that way gods can sit back and live off of the labor of their human workforce. And Babylon's creation myth, it doesn't sugarcoat um, the purpose of humanity, but it does give purpose to Babylon, and that is to conquer and enslave humanity, which they did. While modern world religions may not subscribe to this, the question remains, if there is God, why is there anything else? What is the purpose of humanity and existence? If by God's very nature, God is singular, God is fundamentally inward-looking and not outgoingly loving. Now, I recognize that the word outgoingly isn't, it doesn't exist, but you understand what I'm saying. Any monotheistic religion has to struggle with this tension. How can a solitary God be eternally and essentially loving when love involves loving another? So in the 4th century BC, Aristotle wrestled with this idea, and he was really trying to figure out, how can God be good if he is solitary? And here's his solution. And this is probably an oversimplification, but I think the argument is essentially put this way. God is eternally self-giving and good because he is eternally self-giving and good to the universe. In other words, he is ever creating, he is ever creating, and thus he is ever good because he is good to his creation. Does that make sense? Now, this sounds good in theory, but if this is true, then God is essentially dependent on his creation to be who he is. In other words, God is not God without creation. He needs to be good to his creation in order to be good. And this is the fundamental flaw of worshiping a single-person God. Inevitably, the creator creates out of the neediness or desire to use what has been created 
mainly for the purpose of self-gratification. I need to be good, so then I create. I need something, so then I create. See, the triune nature of God is what makes him divine. It's also what makes him good. Because there has been eternal love, it is entirely characteristic of God to turn and create others that God might also love them. So creation then is about the extension of that love outward so that it might be enjoyed by others. Here's a larger portion of the text in John 17. Jesus prays, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, that I myself may be in them. The Gospel Commission (coughs) is then about us integrating into community with the Trinity. That's the whole purpose of Christ's mission, reconciling self-centered humanity to an outward-focused Trinity. In John 15, Jesus shares the parable of the vine and the branches. And in this passage, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. So here Jesus says something really significant. He says, you must remain in me. You'll notice here that Jesus alludes to salvation not as a status, but as a relationship. Salvation not as status, but a relationship. See, when salvation is a status, it's as if grace is something that God passes out like pocket money. I don't know if you're familiar with the bank account illustration. When you sin, it's like you've overdrawn on your account. It's when your account goes into the negative. So then salvation is when God gives you a blank check and says, you'll never have to worry about overdrawing on your account ever again. Now, sure, there are some elements of truth to the metaphor, but grace is not when God gives things out like money. Grace is when God gives himself. Michael Reeves writes, As the sun gives of itself its own light and warmth in shining on us, so God gives us himself and the blessedness he has always enjoyed. He does so in giving us his son, He does so in giving us his spirit. So then salvation is about God giving himself so that humanity will be drawn to him and choose to remain in him. In John 15, verse 7, Jesus continues on with a parable. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So we remain in God by remaining in his word, by following his word. In John 15, verse 12, Jesus continues on, we remain in God by loving one another in the context of a community. 
Jesus ends the parable of the vine and the branches by introducing the work of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 15, verse 26, he says, When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So Jesus wants his followers to be aware of the work of the Holy Spirit because Jesus knows his physical presence. It's no longer going to provide comfort to his followers. So then it was necessary for the Holy Spirit to be introduced as the member of the Trinity who would continue on Christ's work on earth. The Spirit's job is to make known the Father and the Son. So then salvation, it's about integrating into a community that practices acceptance, forgiveness, and deference. And you and I are invited to participate in this community that has been since eternity past. See, religion, it's not about God trying... <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> religion, it's not about God trying to get humanity to follow a set of rules. The Bible presents religion as a relationship. It's about sharing the delight of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I could summarize the purpose of Christianity in a few verses. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 to 40, Jesus is asked, which is the greatest commandment? And here, Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is why the vision of the Melbourne City Adventist Church is loving God, loving people, exploring a Christ-centered worldview. And it's my prayer that in our community, we can experience on a small scale what communion with the Trinity feels like. It's my prayer that you sense God as you pursue this quality of community. Now, usually when I write a sermon, and it goes for between eight to nine pages, it goes for about 35 to 40 minutes, and I realize I've preached for about 15 to 20, <laughs> but that's the sermon. And I just, I hope that as you consider this idea of the Trinity, it becomes more than this idea or this doctrine that seems so distant and unrelatable, but rather this is foundational to who God is because God encourages us, encourages us to then extend that community. And I hope our church can be that for the, for the community of Melbourne. May God bless you as you consider his word. As usual, we have our time of discussion. Um, I'm going to invite you to pull your phones out and you can scan the discussion questions. We'll be covering them in the back as we have some nibbles and as we catch up with each other. For those of you who are joining us online, I'm just going to invite you to pull out your phones as well. And you can also scan the QR code and um, think through the questions that, that have been written in regards to uh, really deepening our understanding of the Trinity. For those of you who are interested in getting involved in our church, we have a Next Steps survey. Uh, feel free to scan the QR code if you'd like to get plugged in, if you'd like to serve, or if you'd like the pastors or the leadership to come visit you, feel free to scan the Next Steps Connect card, and that gives us a chance to connect with you. Will you join me as we close for prayer? Father God, it's good to know that you are a God that is good, 
you are a God that is love. You are not dependent on us to be who you are. And there are often times where we feel we have to defend you, we have to defend faith, but the reality is you have been since eternity past, and you will be for eternity future. And I just pray that as a church community that we can live out our faith so that it's not just intellectual knowledge, but that it's experience, uh, it's experiential within the context of a community. May we, be, may we be that community that rightly reflects and represents you. We pray these things in your name.